been a fascinating uh, week, <coughs> hasn't it? I, um, of course, there are plenty of people who are bored stiff, deeply cynical about politics, but I hope you've been persuaded, if you were here in our Bible and politics series, that as, as Christians we are called to be concerned for our nation. And um, uh, this last week, a whole range of issues of national importance have come to be hanging in the balance. Not only do we have a, a hung parliament, the parliament, but it's come at a moment when we are in uh, financial difficulty as a nation, some say, which is unprecedented since the war. But more than that has been going on. I mean, perhaps you don't know that the Germans are going today to vote. Um, uh, they have just agreed, Angela Merkel has just agreed to pay 22.4 billion euros to Greece in an attempt to stop the Eurozone uh, melting down and nobody frankly knows whether it will work. Uh, 80% of Germans are opposed to this and uh, poor old Angela Merkel at that moment has to put herself up um, to the electorate. Who knows what will happen? And then, of course, there is what uh, um, President Obama has called a potentially unprecedented environmental disaster happening in the Gulf of Mexico with the, uh, the oil spill not stemmed yet. Thailand, Kyrgyzstan were mentioned. We've forgotten, haven't we? Iraq, Afghanistan the slow-burning crisis of global warming. A good number of wise commentators suggest, as David, I think, was trying to suggest to us, um, uh, that perhaps, perhaps, in fact, our actual situation is a good bit better than it has been at some other moments in the last 50 years. But there is little doubt, actually, that our mood as a nation is more anxious for instance, in 1997, 40% of Britons agreed with the statement Britain is becoming a worse place to live. And today, that has risen to 71%. How should Christians respond? This morning I want to suggest to you Christians should respond with confidence. See, the Bible, in the midst of turmoil that's been going on for a few thousand years so far, the Bible makes the most extraordinarily bold claims. God, it says, is absolutely sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over nations and politics. Right now, in, uh, well, they're not smoke-filled rooms these days, are they? But in, uh, in a room in Westminster, a group of uh, um, uh, MPs are discussing the future of our nation. And God, no matter what Nick Clegg himself thinks, is sovereign over that. God is sovereign even over nature itself. 
Yes, the volcano in, the, in Iceland was an act of God. And God is absolutely sovereign over your life and over mine. Now, that doesn't mean to say that he has presently eliminated evil. One day, he promises, all evil will be eliminated. But meantime, God exercises his his sovereignty in such a way that he sets a limit on evil. He will not let evil thwart his ultimate plans for his world, for this country, for you. But evil does still have some sway. Trouble may come to you. The Bible never promises anything else. Trouble may come to you. But, says the Bible, you are eternally safe if you are a Christian. This week I've been meditating on Psalm 46 and that's why I asked for it to be read um, uh, before we turned to Matthew 8 because Psalm 46 is one of many psalms and many places in the Bible which explore these, uh, these ki- kinds of issues. Verse 6 has been uh, a centre point for me. The nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. That 3,000 years later nearly could be uh, a comment a very uh, pertinent comment. And then verse 6 goes on, he lifts his voice, God only has to speak, and uh, he says, the earth melts. In other words, in other words the, the, the very earth itself, the very creation itself, is responsive simply to the voice of God. And then look at the response in verse 10 that is expected of believers. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. This is my purpose. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, there are plenty of people, actually even professing Christians, who reply to statements like that. I just can't see it. I just can't believe that. And um, uh, there are many answers I could give to that. Let me just give you one. Let me just suggest, step back for a moment from your own individual troubles or from the troubles of this uh, nation that we see for a minute. Step back for a moment and consider the big picture. Who would have believed, for instance, that an insignificant pastoralist um, living in the fertile crescent nearly 4,000 years ago, would have become the father of many nations. But that's what God said to Abraham and today we can transparently see that it was true. There are millions upon millions of people in nations throughout the world who, who, owe the, 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 who see the father of their faith as Abraham. When God promised that to him, he just had to trust it. Today we can see, of course it was true. Thousands upon thousands of Israelites died not having seen that happen yet. But we've seen it. 
So shouldn't we trust God? Who would have believed that 12 insignificant uh, Middle Eastern peasants and fishermen would become the foundation of the Christian church that would spread out through uh, all nations and in the end have millions upon millions of people sharing their faith. And yet that's exactly what Jesus said that he was going to do with the 12 disciples and that is exactly what has happened. 2,000 years later we can see of course that is true. So we have solid evidence, solid ground on which to believe these outrageous biblical claims that God is in control and he knows what he's doing and nothing will thwart his purposes. As the, as, as the prophet Isaiah said at one point, see, speaking with the mouth of God, see the former things have taken place. New things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. That is what the Bible is all about. You have every reason to believe it's bold claims that God is in control. You have every reason to believe what the Apostle Paul says, for instance, to believers, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can believe that because everything that he said that is testable has come true. That's, that, that's the background that we need as we approach this, uh, the, the, these stories in Matthew 8. Bold claims about the sovereignty of God over his world and his unstoppable purpose. Remember, Matthew was written at a time and to people who, were, who, who felt that those confidence claims, confident claims were very much being threatened. A time when uh, the Jews and the Roman uh, Empire were, were uh, coming more and more into conflict and if that wasn't enough, the Christians just seemed to be a marginalised, irrelevant little sect. What, what, what were they to believe, these Christians? Matthew sets out in part at least to show everything that happened to Jesus was exactly as God had foretold it and planned it. And from chapter 11 onwards of Matthew 11, he will explain very carefully that, that Jesus was anticipated to be, appear to be weak. He will not cry out in the streets. He would achieve his purposes actually whilst appearing to be weak. The Bible anticipated that he would be rejected. The Bible anticipated that he would be finally crucified. This is no surprise, says Matthew. But before he gets onto that, he sketches out for us the underlying truth that we're going to be, we've been learning about and we will continue to learning, learn about in Matthew 8 and 9. 
Jesus is absolutely sovereign. Weak though he may appear to be, marginalised though his people may appear to be, Jesus is absolutely sovereign. He is unstoppable. And uh, here in uh, um, the section of Matthew uh, 8 and 9 that we have to look at uh, this morning, he says something extraordinary. He says, all the sovereign power that God claims for himself, we've already looked at, is actually wielded by Jesus. It's a big surprise to someone who's read their Old Testament. Jesus? This man on the earth? Absolutely, says Matthew. He wields God's sovereign power, for instance, over nature, verses 23 to 27. A dangerous storm blows up, verse 24, without warning a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat uh, but Jesus was sleeping. That, that this is particularly terrifying to a Jewish mind because they weren't, uh, as a nation, particularly seafarers and they had come in their sort of national consciousness to see the sea as being the, the source and the centre of all forces uh, opposed to God, all the forces of chaos. The sea was a terrifying place. A few brave fishermen may go out on the sea sometimes, but here these brave fishermen are being overwhelmed by the forces of nature. And Jesus is asleep, no doubt partly because of tiredness, but uh, uh, it seems as well because he's absolutely calm about this situation. The disciples are far from calm. They exercise the kind of faith, Lord, they say, to, uh, um, uh, to Jesus in uh, verse 25, Lord, save us. <coughs> but frankly, it's a sort of grasping at straws faith, isn't it? We are going to drown. And Jesus is very, very interesting when he finally does get rudely awakened from his, his sleep. He does not turn, first of all, to sort out their situation. While the storm is still raging, imagine this, he starts to preach a little sermon. Come on, Jesus, get your act together. But no, you of little faith, he says, why are you so afraid? so important for us to, to, to understand this and to see this and to understand the way that God works, the way that Jesus works still for his disciples. He expects, he's generous with our little faith, but he expects and looks for a faith that can cope in the storm, before the storm is stilled, 
while our circumstances look terrifying and overwhelming. This is, this is what he is trying to teach these disciples whilst the waves crash over the, the gunnels of the boat. He's saying, come on, can't you see? You've got someone with you who claims to be the Son of God. Have you not computed that yet? And then to prove that his rebuke is entirely appropriate. He gets up, he rebuked rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. In the Old Testament, God controlled the wind and the waves with a word. Here, Jesus does. Jesus is in control of nation. Jesus is in control of nature. Jesus is in control of his whole world. He can snuff out a volcano in, uh, uh, in Iceland like a, like a person snuffing out a birthday candle if he wants to. He can throw politicians into complete confusion. And he can resolve that confusion by his word. He is in control. Just to sharpen it then, Matthew, Matthew who, remember, has collected these stories together to make, make a, 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 a point, just to sharpen it then, he's not only in control over nature, he is in control, says Matthew, over the spiritual forces of evil in this world. That's the, that's the, the, the thrust of verses 28 to 34 of um, uh, Matthew chapter 8. Two madmen approach Jesus. He arrives at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes in verse 28. Two demon-possessed men coming... uh, He met two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And behind this madness is clearly uh, uh, spiritual forces of evil, says Matthew. These people are are demon-possessed. We may not see precisely that manifestation of hostile forces, hostile spiritual forces in our culture. You, you probably do, more obviously in some other cultures in the world. But that should not blind us to the reality that behind violence and disturbance of human beings, are spiritual forces of evil who are trying to stir up human beings to hostility to one another and evil and wickedness. Don't underestimate the reality of spiritual forces of evil in today's world. If they can manipulate us best by uh, uh, hiding behind other things than overt demon possession in today's world, then Satan and his hordes will do that. But they are very real. And Jesus responds responds very clearly 
and as as decisively to those spiritual forces of evil. They themselves, these demons, are terrified of him. What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They know their time is, their days are numbered, you see. They plead with him and ultimately he agrees to have them driven into a herd of pigs and the herd of pigs um, rush down into the Sea of Galilee and are drowned. Why does Jesus do that? Why does that happen? Frankly, I don't know. Except that that whole story then serves as a very vivid picture of both the malevolence of the spiritual forces out there and of Jesus' determination to defeat them, to drive them away. He is sovereign then, even over spiritual forces of evil. You notice that in that uh, Romans 8 passage that I quoted just uh, at the beginning. Neither angels nor demons, neither height nor depth, which may be another metaphor for um, uh, uh, spiritual forces from behind the scenes. Nothing else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is no evil that can overwhelm you if you are a Christian. It can do you damage. It can even mess with your mind. And it can even kill you. But it cannot separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus demonstrates his sovereign power over even Satan and his hordes. And then the third story sharpens it even more and develops the picture that Matthew wants to display to us. He is sovereign over nature, over evil, over our salvation. It's very interesting. In some ways, chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, seems to be a much more domestic and less dramatic story. Not, there's not wild madmen coming to attack Jesus or threaten him. There's not, there's not a sea about to overwhelm them. There's a paralysed man who needs healing, he's in difficulty, but a paralysed man, and Jesus even moves the conversation on from that to forgiveness of sins. I mean, aren't you, aren't you moving from extraordinary grand things to pretty minor things, Jesus? No, he is not. You see, 
You see, the Bible ha- had taught, had taught, teaches very, very clearly, you see, that the whole of God's creation is moving in a certain direction. It is moving towards the judgment and elimination of all evil and wickedness and the restoration of God's creation as it should have been. And those first two miracles demonstrate that Jesus is quite capable of doing that. He can restore his creation, he can just say, peace be still and it's still. He can defeat um, Satan, he can just speak and Satan is banished. But then there is a big question, a big question for us here. Will you be part of that? And the issue you see of God's forgiveness is vitally important because none of us here can say in our own right, yeah, I deserve to be part of that new creation. All of us need the forgiveness of God. And Jesus, again, does something extraordinary that the the, the teachers around him spot He says, verse 2, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming, because only God could say our sins are forgiven. The best a human being could say is, May God forgive you. And then Jesus, but, but Jesus shows he meant exactly to say that. So that you may know, verse 6, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. He heals the paralysed man to demonstrate by a physical miracle the greater claim that he has made. That he has the authority to decide who is forgiven and who is not. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over evil. He is sovereign over our forgiveness. He wields all the power of God personally. That's why, you see, we're not just worshippers of God as Christians. We are worshippers of Jesus. That is why just a vague belief in God is not enough for you to be okay with God. Have to see who Jesus is and seek forgiveness from him that he won on the cross when he died to pay for our sins. If we are right with Jesus, we are secure. But Matthew has woven something else really important into these uh, three stories that I want you to see as much as the stuff about Jesus' authority. Matthew has very carefully described a whole range of responses to this Jesus as he's gone through his story. 
to bring to us the question, how will you respond to this Jesus? Let me show you them, at least some of them. Chapter 8, verse 26. For instance, he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Literally, um, uh, why are you so timid? Why are you cowardly? Why are you such wimps? If you've got me with you, Shouldn't you be the most courageous people in the world as the storms beat against us? Let me just list them before we come back to each of these ones. There's another response in verse 27, a slightly more positive response. Amazement and confusion. Men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It seems to be a positive move forward. Not yet full Christian faith. But there is a sense of amazement and perhaps confusion that is often in people's hearts. Rightly so. It's a step forward. Or another response that Matthew uh, highlights, which is a very, very important warning to us. Hostility. Isn't verse 34 surprising? The whole town went out to meet Jesus. He's done an amazing thing. He's liberated these demon-possessed men from the, the evil forces that dominated uh, them. He has made it so that people can pass by that way now and frankly they just had to avoid the region these men were so scary. The whole town comes out to Jesus and you sort of, and, the, and they beg him, it, it says, they pleaded with him. This is, this is the language that the centurion used we saw two weeks ago when he pleaded with Jesus to, to help his, uh, his servant. They pleaded with him, um, says Matthew, to leave the region. Presumably because they just lost a major part of their uh, corporate uh, capital in terms of a whole, t- whole herd of pigs that has just uh, been lost in the lake. Yeah, there are losses associated with following Jesus. And some people just say, please go away. We can expect that. Wouldn't be surprised if there weren't people here today whom that will be their ultimate conclusion. Matthew's, Matthew's really interesting as well in, of course, the group that he describes begging Jesus to go away because the main story in Matthew is how the religious people, the Jews of his day, became increasingly hostile to Jesus until ultimately they crucified him and rejected him. Matthew says that's the main way things tend to go, paradoxically. Religious people reject Jesus. But here's another counterpoint to that. Sometimes the very people that the Gospel is 
is designed to spread amongst the marginalised people, the, the people who, uh, who, who uh, the Bible expects to be the responders, sometimes they say, clear off. Like these people in this Gentile area. Right? Hostility from all groups is something to be expected as Jesus reveals his sovereign power. And then possibly the most positive response in this whole section comes to the end as story after story has built this picture of Jesus' authority. Verse 8, when the crowd saw this, the healing of the um, lame man, the paralysed man, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. They, they, they're, they're on the way. There's a sense of holy awe at this Jesus and a response of praise and worship. There's some way to go, but they're heading in the right direction. So, Matthew describes these responses, you see, for a reason, for us. So that we sit there and say, and ask, rightly, what is my response to that? Let me, let me, let me point up two of those responses. Get them really clear in our minds. One, one is, to, um, is to people who are not yet following Jesus or perhaps think they are following Jesus but it's just dawning on them what that really costs. Perhaps, last, perhaps from last week when I remember Jesus effectively said it costs everything. Nothing can be held back. It costs everything. This, this, this passage is a solemn warning to those people that you might find yourself begging Jesus to go away. That's how people sometimes respond. Our nation... People out there, the more they see of Jesus, the more they will want nothing to do with Jesus, the more they will reject him with increasing fierceness and vigour. If we as a church, if Christians in Britain continue to grow and develop and, and, and make more inroads back into a society that desperately needs to know Christ and if they become more significant Make no mistake about it, the hostility will rise. And it might come from your heart. Don't let it. Yeah. It will cost you at least as much as it cost those villagers who lost their pigs. but don't plead with him to go away.
And then to Christians, to people who are following Jesus, who've, who've started along that road and that, that, that is the disciples here um, who are with Jesus. I want to point out to you the need for courage. Amazing. Don't be afraid is one of the is is the most common phrase that Jesus uses in the Gospels, and it's not an idle rebuke to these disciples. Why are you so timid? Courage is vitally important. You can claim that you believe all the things that I talked about, about the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of Jesus over your life. You can claim claim that you believe it, but if that does not result in courageous action for Jesus, then it will mean nothing. C.S. Lewis says that 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 he thinks courage is the central virtue that Christians need because 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 courage underlies all virtues. Love that is only love when it's easy and then chickens out when it's tough is not real love. Bold witness for Jesus that is only bold witness for Jesus when it's easy and chickens out when it's difficult is not really bold witness for Jesus. If you do not have courage, if there is not steel in your soul, then you will not live your life as a follower of Jesus. I said, didn't I, that, that, that Matthew's purpose and my purpose in this whole series is to, is to give you a vision and to help you to be people of solid conviction in a world that needs to hear, Jesus, hear of Jesus, needs to see him in us. And this issue of courage is absolutely central. What intimidates you right now? What is it? Fear of losing friends? Um, Old age perhaps is coming and if I serve Jesus with all my heart, mind and soul and strength maybe it will shorten my life. Maybe it will. If I don't if I Uh, if I don't put all my effort into making sure I've got a secure house and a secure mortgage, then I will be not safe. So I need to tone down my Christian convictions in the workplace because I need that promotion. I just don't know what intimidates you. What makes you draw back from serving Jesus wholeheartedly. I do want you to hear that rebuke. Why are you so afraid? To us as a church. What's your calling within this place? What's our calling as a church? I think I know mine. 
I think my central calling is to help you to see Jesus, to understand the Bible and to be built up as people with solid, firm convictions and a deep joy in Jesus Christ. I think that's my calling and I'm going to devote myself to, to doing that. But we're a body here. What's, what's your calling? What, what are you called to do as part of that great project of delighting in God and displaying his glory? I, I, I'm, I, I, we have an opportunity here as a, as a, as a relatively small church to, to be involved in extraordinary things. We said that it's our vision to reach the peoples of East Oxford and, and the world. That, that we have a multicultural city with a global reach, an enormously exciting place to serve God. Are you going to be part of that? Who knows in eternity what blessing there might come from a small group of people who devote themselves to that kind of ministry. We are called, we, we have in our vision statement to, to, to nurture and disciple one another through Christ-like relationships so that people are built up. This, is, this church is mostly young. You will go and, and many, most people here will be somewhere else in five years' time and in five, ten, fifteen years' time. Will you be really pulling your weight in a church and fulfilling your calling under Christ? It is our opportunity now to establish foundations for people for their whole lives. And I tell you, courage is a key issue. Will you set out and live courageously for Christ? Establish that as a pattern, as a habit of your heart, as, uh, as some people describe it. It will last you the whole life. I do not know where that will take you. And it might take you to some very difficult places. But will you be courageous? in the way that you live. Will we be courageous as God's people? All the authority of God and he controls everything for your good. All the authority of God is focused on the person of Jesus. He says to us, so why are you afraid? If I'm with you, and I am, nothing can stop you.